And today we come back to Isaiah, we come back to our text, and, and we're going to spend some time talking about all of the attributes of God and, and who He is, but also how He wants relationship with us. So many times we can go through life and, and we have this separation from God. We're like, okay, who? We, we, we say all these great things about God, but I don't see Him right now, right here in my situation. And I would bet every one of us have had a time where we're like, I don't know if God's present. Where is God? Is God in this? And sometimes we struggle with, we know God is holy and we talk about His holiness and righteousness and we know we're not. We know the crud that's in our lives. And we're like, how can He still love me? Has He given up on me? And the children of Israel, Judah specifically, as they're sitting in captivity in Babylon, might have been feeling some of those same things. They've now been in in captivity for almost 70 years, out of their land, out of their homes. And and in the back of their mind is this promise that we are God's people, that God is going to do something with us. But we're sitting here in Babylon in captivity, and it doesn't look like there's any hope. And so I could see them sitting there thinking, God's forgotten us. And, And maybe not so much God's forgotten us, but I blew it so much. I have walked so far away from God that he's given up on me. But God in his love and his grace and his mercy instructed Isaiah to write the second half of the book. Because if you remember, and and it's been a while, so I want to review, the second half of Isaiah is written to a people in captivity in Babylon. But it's written 150 years earlier. It's awesome how God works. And so he had Isaiah 150 years before the people would need it write to them words that said, God hasn't forgotten you. Words that would encourage. This is one of the few chapters in Isaiah where God isn't going to say anything negative about Israel. He's just going to comfort. He's just going to console. And it's a beautiful thing. And he's going to, he's going to say, remember, don't be afraid of your situations. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Because remember, I made you and I won't abandon you. Remember, I am God alone and you can trust me and I am here with you. Remember, I've forgiven your sins and they're gone. It's done. It's paid for. Remember, I'm working out my plan and I have not forgotten you. As we come to the text today, none of us are sitting in Babylon. But we might be in some dark situations and we can learn so much from God's encouragement to to Judah We can learn so much from his word to this people of who God is and how he wants to encourage us, how we take heart in difficult situations, how we don't let sin and our failures separate us from God because he is always there, faithful and waiting to draw us back to himself. Turn with me to Isaiah 44. This is an incredible chapter and I I just want to mine the riches of it together and We'll go through the chapter and we'll look at those four things I just mentioned of the encouragement that God gives. Keep in mind, Isaiah is writing this and and like I said, he's writing it in the future for a future people that will need it. It would be a lot like you as parents if you knew that your kids, 50 years from now, were going to encounter a specific trial, whatever that may be, a death of a child or or loss of job, or, or death of a spouse, and, and you're looking forward, and, and you know we can't do that, we can't look forward, I, I wish I could sometimes, but you somehow see this, and you write a note to your son or your daughter, what would you say to encourage them? 
And that's what we have in Isaiah 44. And actually this whole section, Isaiah 44, is going to link to a lot of things we studied in 43. And it's going to introduce a lot of themes in 45 next week and 46. But I want to enjoy the beauty of God's consolation. Because nobody can comfort like God Almighty. So Isaiah 44, starting in verse 1. And verses 1 through 5 are a section, and this is God reminding them, and and the whole thing is going to be, do not fear, remember these things. The Lord will never abandon His own. The Lord will never abandon His own. This is the one time you can say never. He is faithful to those that are His. Let's look through the text. Verse 1, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. And right from the start, and he had just given some bad news in in 43 and some judgment for their sin. And he starts with, but now, this is different, but now hear this. And, and, And I want you to see as we go through this section, see God's compassion. See his comfort, his reassurance of his people. And it starts with what he calls them. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. And he reminds them that they are chosen That word reminds them that they are His beloved, that God hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't given up on them. And even my servant, and we saw in in 42 and 43 that God introduced the servant that would come, Jesus Christ, because Israel was a failed servant. They had blown it. They weren't the servant that God wanted them to be. But now even in this, He's reminding them, even though you're my flawed servant, you're still mine. You're still my servant. And the perfect servant and the Messiah and Jesus Christ is still coming. And so he gives this, this word chosen, this term of endearment. And he goes on to say, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeserun, whom I have chosen. And all of this is designed to reassure. He, he, he's, they're sitting in Babylon and the word is fear not. Fear not, you're still chosen. God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't given up on you. He reminds them some of the basis for his choosing, some of the basis for his love for them is, I made you. I formed you from the womb. I will help you. I'm not just going to make something and give up on it. I care about you. When my kids make something and they, they are often making projects and you can see when they've put their time and their energy in something, they cherish that, right? They protect it. And then the sibling comes and crushes it, and then there's tears and yelling and screaming. Why is there so much? Why are they so upset? Because they made this. They poured themselves into this. And God is saying, you are my people. I made you. I formed you from the womb. I will help you. He then goes on to talk about his salvation. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. And he's talking that he will bring salvation to them. The dry and thirsty land. And you know, they're in Babylon. They're away from their land. That would have resonated that he's going to restore our land. And so this is probably a, a promise of both physical restoration to them, to Israel, but spiritual restoration. I will pour out my spirit, and, and this is more than Israel, upon your offspring, my blessings, which is the spirit here, upon your descendants. 
And so God, in his reassurance, says, I made you, I formed you, I haven't abandoned you. In fact, I'm going to pour my spirit out on you and bring salvation. Don't fear. Don't give up. Even in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, the the name Jeshurun, it means righteous one or upright one. He's calling Israel, who's being punished for their sin, his righteous one. And it's again an, an endearment term. And he's reminding them of, of his faithfulness, that through his spirit, he's the one making them righteous. I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on a dry ground. And it's a reminder that we are dry and thirsty without the spirit. We're dry and thirsty without God pouring his work in our lives. And, and you know, by way of application, one of the questions I think of is how often do we really think of ourselves as thirsty and dry. How often do I crave God's word because I just have to have it like I crave a glass of water on a hot day? But that's how the Holy Spirit is to come to us. He imparts new life. He pours his spirit on his, the descendants. In Acts 2:17 in in Peter's um, sermon at, at Pentecost, he says in the last days it shall be God, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's referencing Joel 2, and he's saying, this is being fulfilled now. The Holy Spirit's coming. And so we see in this consolation, I won't abandon you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to give you my spirit. And it's like this loving Father coming alongside and reassuring. In verse 5, we see him broaden who salvation's for. This one will say, I am Yahweh's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand the Lord's or Yahweh's and name himself by the name of Israel. And and we look at this and it's a beautiful description of our relationship with God, isn't it? I am God's. I am his child. I am his son. I am his daughter. But what's amazing about this is verse 5 really has the idea of people that aren't from Judah. The Gentiles. You and me. Unless you're Jewish... This gives us hope because he's saying of a people that will now take on the name of Israel or take on the name of Jacob. And so God in his work to reassure, to remind them he will never abandon them is also promising, I will be with my people, my church, those that follow me. I am their God and they are my people. And so this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And and that was a custom of the time that they would do if you were working for someone, if you were a servant of someone, you'd write their name on your hand, a distinguishing mark. Or or in the Code of Hammurabi, they they would put it in their hair, some sort of mark on their head. And it represented a personal commitment to God. But the consolation, the encouragement starts with God hasn't abandoned you. He made you. He created you. He saved you. Trust Him. And what a thing for the children of Israel to remember while they're in Babylon. When they don't see God working is a reminder of their identity. I am God's son. I am God's daughter. And He's speaking of those that believe in Him, those that trust Him, those that call on His name and take His name like in verse 5. But we can say that today. Every one of us who has taken the name of God, every one of us who has followed Him, is his child, his son or daughter, and he will not abandon us. 
and we're sitting in here, and I know a lot, life might be good right now. We're like, well, okay, I know he hasn't abandoned us. But what a good thing to remember and remind ourselves of as we head through difficulties and trials. But then he moves on in verse 6, and he's reminded them that he hasn't abandoned them, and now he reminds them that he is God alone. God is God alone. Nothing else satisfies. Trust him alone. And he's going to deal with idolatry, but he's going to do it in two steps here. The first few verses are going to proclaim the absolute uniqueness of God. That God is completely other. There is no other God like him. In fact, there's no other God. And he's going to give his credentials. And then in verses 9 through 20, he's going to consider the absurdity of idolatry. And say, come on. Come on, really? And we're going to just follow it through and and follow what what he has to say. But in verses 6 through 8, we see these beautiful verses that proclaim who Yahweh or who God is. Yahweh being God's personal covenant name. It's it's who he is. And so Isaiah in verse 6 says, Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And these descriptions are just going to come fast and furious. He's going to machine gun us to give us the breadth of who God is. And so Yahweh, the personal covenant-keeping God, King, He's ruler over all things, not the Babylonian king. Redeemer reminds us of His forgiveness and mercy. Lord of hosts reminds us of His power. If you remember that title, it had to do with leading an army. I am the first reminding us that He is an underived God. He has always been. No one made Yahweh. He is. I am the last. He never ends. He remains supreme at the end. All other gods, little g, fall away. But he remains to the end. Besides me, there is no God. What a statement. What a statement to a people living in Babylon where idolatry was, was king. Idolatry was all over the place. In Babylon, they served a god named Marduk was their major god. They had all kinds of other gods because you wanted to cover your bases, but Marduk was the major god, and it was such that they found in the tiles that you would walk on, every tile had an inscription on the edge to the honor of Marduk. And so you couldn't do anything in Babylon without thinking Marduk, Marduk. And, and Marduk was, you know, this, this big warrior-looking guy had a pet dragon just in case you got on his, his bad side. And God's reminding them now, there's no one like me. We sang that this morning. He goes on in verse 7 to talk about that he's incomparable. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Come on, tell me. Let him declare it and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people... Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. A little bit of tongue-in-cheek here. He's saying, okay, if there are other gods, tell me, did they create you? Did they create all the peoples? And and in fact, can they tell you what will happen? If not, they're no god. Marduk's nothing. And he's proclaiming his credentials because he does declare what will come. He does know what will happen. He is sovereign and nothing happens outside of his plan. In verse 8, again, we see the second time in this passage, fear not, nor be afraid. He's comforting. He's saying, 
Don't get distressed by your circumstances. Don't let them overwhelm you. I am God alone. There is no one like me. Have I not told you from of old in verse 8 and declared it? And you are my witnesses. You know I am God. Look at your history. Look at all I've done. I brought you out of Egypt. I, I gave you a land. We, all these miracles and Joshua and, and crossing the Red Sea and crossing the Jordan and Jericho. We could go on and on and on. You're my witnesses. I am God. Trust me. Is there a God beside me? I love this phrase. There is no rock. I know not any. And he's saying God alone is our rock. Rock is a refuge, a a stable presence that doesn't change. An anchor in our lives. Psalm 95.1 says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And we talked about that in the names of God. And I don't know where it is on the wall, but we have that He is our rock. And so God here is challenging them. Where do you go for help? Are you starting to look to Marduk for help? Are you looking to me? Who do you trust? And boy, that rings true for us. When we get into difficult situations, who do we trust? Who do we look to for help? Maybe, maybe the answer to that question is, who do we think will actually help us? Yes, we pray and we say we're going to God, but do we actually think He's going to take care of situations? And God is reminding us, I'm the only one that can. God is God alone. Nothing else satisfies. Nothing else can take care of these situations. No one can stop God's plans because there's no God like God. So no one's above God. Nothing can interfere with His plans. Nothing can stand in the way of His purposes. Amen? That is the God we serve. And so God says that's part of your comfort when you wonder where I am. When you wonder if I'm part of your situation. And then in verse 9-20, through He takes us on a little field trip. And he's going to talk about the absurdity of idolatry. And and he's going to say, consider it. Consider idolatry. It's foolish and absurd. And in these verses, he's really going to take us into an idol maker's workshop. And he's going to step us through the process, sort of backwards through the process, of how they made idols and show us how at each step of the way, it's really stupid. And, and, And I know that my kids are like, oh, that's the S word. In some cases, it's okay to say stupid. And when it comes to making and worshiping idols, I'm okay with using stupid. And so he comes through and he starts to work through this. And, and the, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to say idols cannot rise above their makers. Let's consider who makes idols. Idols cannot have any more power than the power of who made them, right? If I, if I make something, I'm giving it the power that is within my control to give it. And so he's going to go there and, and in verse 9 he says, okay, let's, let's think of those who fashion idols. All who fashion idols are nothing. Well, that just puts it out there right away. And remember nothing. Do you remember the, the Hebrew word for nothing? Tohu. It's like tofu. Remember, and tofu has no taste. It's nothing. Um, no, no value. So this is, this, is your, this is your Hebrew for the day. And, and just uh, well, it keeps coming up in Isaiah because it's the same word that's used in Genesis 1-2. And the earth was formless and void. 
It was nothing. It had no value. And so right, Isaiah jumps in, all who fashion idols are tohu. And the things they delight in do not profit. They don't do any good. This is nothing. This is, this is silly. They're witnesses, and, and he just used witnesses up a couple verses of our witness to God. And so their witnesses here are the worshipers of these idols. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. He's saying those who worship the idols, they're spiritually blind and they're ignorant. This is foolishness. And so he says this is, they're, they're stupidly making idols. And in fact, the word delight is used, which means they're treasuring them. And they're worthless. It's a pet rock. It's nothing. And, and so he's saying, so, so, so how can Marduk or anything else that's fashioned make any sense? He goes on in 10 and 11. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? To put it in our vernacular, who does this? Really? He, so, so they know it does nothing. These people that are doing it, they must have some other motives. Behold, all his companions, so all the idol workers, the, the sort of guild of idol workers, they shall all be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And the idea is they're terrified of when the real God comes because they've been making all these fake little worthless trinkets. It's sort of saying, isn't it embarrassing and shameful to make something that's not good for anything? That's not profitable for anything? It's useless. And they should know better. But an idol can never rise above its maker. And so if its maker is stupid, the idol is stupid. Now, this is sort of a silly example of, of being embarrassed about something we make or the types of things we think. Anyone watch Shark Tank? I love Shark Tank. So in your notes, there's a picture of a product that was on Shark Tank a couple weeks ago. It's called the Licky Tongue. Do we have the Licky Tongue up there? Now, how many of you like cats or have cats or hate cats and have cats? Uh, I don't know. Um, this is a, a way that you can connect with your cat. And so you put this item in your mouth, and like a mommy cat, it has little brushes, you lick your cat, and you groom them this way. And if, if you're wondering what this looks like, that's what it looks like. From the mind of man. They, they just chewed them up on Shark Tank. They said, this is useless. This is silly. But, you know, on their website, they have some really cool things. It, it's an oddly meditative practice, soothing for both you and your feline. I can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Grooming is simply more fun with Licky. Try Licky on your puppy, rabbit, and other small creatures. Yeah, yeah, right. It will kill them. No, it doesn't say that. This is the kind of thing we come up with. And these people on the show were delighting in this. They thought this was the best thing ever created. Really? It's absurd. Sorry for you cat lovers. <laughs> Suddenly there's hundred of these sold from Garden Grove on their way. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But do you see how we can delight? We can get so caught up in something we've made and delight in it that we think it's good and it's stupid. 
And, and, and Isaiah here is saying, watch out for the idolatry. It's stupid. It's just hunks of junk. It's come from, from people that have made it. In fact, he goes on. He's not done with this idea that idols can't rise above their makers. 12 and 13, continue it. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. And, and, and he's referring here to the, actually the end of the idol-making process. And he's going to go backwards through it. But they would take this big log, this big, huge piece of wood. I have a piece of wood up here. And, and the, they would line it out and they would chisel out some sort of an image, usually the image of man of some sort. And then at the end, the iron workers would come and they would do one of two things. They'd either put bands around it because the little god can't hold itself together, or they would, they would take metal and put metal all over it and pound it to the shape of the wood and make a metal idol that way. So that way you don't, it doesn't have to be all metal. They would just plate it, basically, plate this piece of wood. So this is referring to that end of the process where they're plating it with a piece of wood. He was the ironsmith, the big strong guy, takes his cutting tool, works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. Oh, and he becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. And there's irony there. And and Isaiah's just sticking the knife in. He's saying the strong person who's making this God, he gets hungry and thirsty and needs to take what God, Yahweh, has created just to survive. That's the God you're trusting? Made by a weak, weak human being? We're all weak. If, if you doubt it, go a couple days without food and water. We have needs. And so he's showing the absurdity again. He goes on and he steps to the carpenter part of the process, backwards a little bit. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. And you get this idea of just careful work. He shapes it into the figure of man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. And it's a reminder that this was just a tree. And it's just a man using some tools on a tree and deciding where to cut. Ironically, a tree that God made. That the Creator made. I think it's also interesting that He's shaping it into the image of man when we are shaped as the image of God. And we are shaped to worship the Creator, not the created And so many of our issues come from the fact that we think we're the creator and we forget that there is a creator above us. We are the created and we are made to worship him. We are designed to bring him glory. That is how life is fulfilling when we are in right relationship with our creator. But when we start to worship the created, we have it all backwards. And it's stupid. Isaiah is saying, consider idolatry. Consider it. Idols have a creator. They are made. They have a beginning. And with a little fire, they have an end. Go with the one who always has been and always will be. Verses 14 through 17. So we know idols can't rise above their maker. 14 through 17. Idols can't rise above their material either. Talks about the carpenter again. He cuts down cedars. Or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. And the idea is he even goes and plants saplings and he, he gets them to grow. And, and who's taking care of them? Him. 
but it's still with God's resources. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. And catch the irony here, and we've talked about this before. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And so the idea is he builds this tree and then he cuts it down and we have firewood, right? And so I can take a couple of these things and I can build a fire and warm myself and bake my bread. It's just a tool. It's just something that burns up and is gone. But then the verse goes on. He takes part of it, warms himself, kindles a fire, bakes bread. Uh, he also it's, he takes the other half and he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you. You are my God. Do you get the sense of humor here? He, he, he's showing the absurdity of idolatry. Because idolatry is trusting stuff to deliver us. And stuff never can. And so, yeah, we could take part of this. And, and this is just an example. We could take this wood and, and all of a sudden realize someone chisels something out. And I'm not going to actually chisel this because it's already done. And then we turn it around It's a God. We should worship. And it says he falls down and worships. Now you think I'm pretty stupid right now. A little crazy for bringing a bear, a wood-carved bear into church and worshiping it. I'm not actually worshiping it. Do you see Isaiah's point? If I get a little cold, it's nice though because his nose is a little big. I cut off part of the nose, have a little more fire, a little more bread. And my God will still save me. Don't worship the bear. And you may be thinking, I don't worship the bear. I don't fall down and worship this. No, I don't fall down and worship anything. We just have different bears. And we struggle with idolatry. See, idols can't rise above their materials. It's just stuff. They're made from ordinary stuff, made by the Creator that we should be worshiping. Roman poet Horace once put it, speaking as an idol, once I used to be an oak tree. A craftsman... however, preferred I should be a god. See, we do have idols. But the problem with idols he addresses in the next few verses, 18 through 20, is that idols blind us from seeing idolatry. The only power idols actually have is to blind us, is to fool us into thinking that they're powerful. And the thing with idolatry is once we have an idol, it is so hard to see we have an idol. It is so hard. So we, get, we go to verse 18. They know not 
nor do they discern. He's not talking about idols here. He's talking about those that fall down and worship them. They don't get it, he's saying. They don't understand. For he has shut their eyes or plastered over their eyes so that they cannot see and that their hearts so they cannot understand. No one even thinks about it. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, oh, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? See, this is a description. What Isaiah is saying is once you're caught in idolatry, once you have something that has replaced God, you can't see it. It takes something to shake us up, to realize. And that's what Isaiah is trying to do. He's trying to shake them up and make sure there's not idolatry. Because idols get their tentacles around us. And idolatry convinces us it's not idolatry. And convinces us it's good, that I should have what I want. That I should be fulfilled and that this will fulfill me. They cloud the mind. The question for us to answer as we read this text is, what are my idols? What are my idols? Now, I don't think anyone in here has a carved bear in their house that they're falling down to worship as they go in. We don't do that either. But when we think of our idols, we have to ask questions. What is important to us? What are we devoted to see an idol is anything that captures more of our devotion than god anything that captures more of our devotion than god or anything that gets in the way of our devotion to god in shortened form it's any god substitute do we have things that get in the way of our devotion to god do we have things that we're more devoted to than god it's still an issue in the new testament The Apostle John writes, he ends his book of 1 John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So here's the thing. The human heart is made to need God. We are made with with a desire to worship God. And so we all worship something. Every human being worships something. Even an atheist. I, I sort of chuckle at atheists because they worship something. Their God just happens to be themselves. We all worship something because we're made to. Something is always most important to us. Jonathan Edwards, a quote that I put in your notes and I have it for the screen as well. He talks about idolatry this way. If man does not give his highest respect to the God that made him, there will be something else that has the possession of it. Men will either worship the true God or some idol. It is impossible it should be otherwise. Something will have the heart of man. And that which a man gives his heart to may be called his God. So what do we give our hearts to? What do we give our time to? Some of the questions we can ask to figure that out is, what, what, what do I really want in life? What do I pursue? What captivates my thoughts? What gets under my skin sometimes reveals what my idols are. What am I willing to sacrifice for or compromise to get? 
know, question that I think is, is pertinent to us may be, okay, what, what am I willing to miss church for? And I'm not saying you have to come to Village. I'm not saying there's something magical about this place. But there's something incredible in any church you go to, a Bible-believing, God-fearing church, of getting together with His people to worship God. That should be a priority of any believer. We're coming together as, as a church family to worship God Almighty. That's a sign of devotion. So it's a legitimate question to say, what am I willing to miss church for? What am I willing to not worship to get to do? Football season, that's always a test, isn't it? And we see what's more important. Green Bay or God? I know the game's not till 12.05 today, right? So you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> Village, we have all kinds of idols, and we're blind to them. I have all kinds of idols I fight, and I'm blind to it. You know, maybe your idol is relationships. I need this relationship. I'm willing to compromise, but I'm going to get so wrapped up in this that everything I do is going to revolve around whether I can be with this person or not. That's a pretty good sign it's an idol. Money or success. And it's so easy to get caught up to spending all our time to moving up the, the ladder at work or to gaining more money. Or if I, if I can just do this and make it, then I'll worship God. Right now, a major idol is, is, is feeding the desires of self. And you see it everywhere. And, and, and entertainment and travel and food are all put on these pedestals and Instagram and because it's an idol of saying, I need to meet my desires and wants. For some, education and degrees might be it. And none of these things are bad if they're in the proper place to the glory of God. Maybe it's stuff. I need the latest toys. I want a wave runner and I want a quad and I need this size house. And those things begin to control us. I've watched so many people that start to get a lot of those toys and then all of a sudden I don't see them on Sundays anymore. And I find out they're not going anywhere and have walked away from God. But they're with their idol and their devotion every weekend. Anything can become an idol if it replaces devotion to God. Village family can be an idol. If my family is more important to me than God and serving Him and being devoted to Him and, and, and working for His kingdom, that's a problem. Now, I'm not saying family is not important. I love my family dearly, but we work together for the kingdom of God. We are all under the purpose of being devoted to God. And it's better that way. What will you miss being in the Word every day for? These are just questions that I, I, I hope shake us into thinking about do we have idols? One dad took his family to the beach every Sunday morning and his children would ask, hey, why aren't we going to church? We're, we're Christians. And dad would say, well, we can worship God anywhere. And his son asked them, then why don't we? They were just out at the beach, never even thought about God. My little children, keep yourselves from idols. Isaiah is saying, remember God is God alone. Nothing else satisfies. Trust Him alone. Don't trust anything else to meet those needs. Idols don't transform. They malform. They don't regenerate. They degenerate. God is worth following. 
and devoting ourselves to even when we sacrifice those other things. That's the main part of his text. Verse 21, he comes back and just a couple of points here as as we wrap up chapter 44. In verses 21 through 23, and this is, I think, the most beautiful part of the, the chapter here. Remember that the Creator alone forgives and redeems, meaning our sins are completely paid for and relationship is restored. I know, a huge point, but I wanted to say it all. God is going to remind them their sins are paid for. They've been under the discipline of God, but it's done. That discipline does not last forever. God is a forgiving God, and once He forgives, it is gone. It is done. We are usually the ones that hold ourselves guilty and keep ourselves from God. And so in verse 21, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. And he brings back this endearing language again. Remember all that I just said, who God is, how great He is, that that He's assured you that He won't abandon you to stay away from idols. Remember I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by Me. I'd underline that. You will not be forgotten by Me. Oh, when we feel like God isn't there, read this verse again. He has not forgotten us. And he goes on to say what he has done in verse 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And the imagery there is, is when, when you have a thick cloud and you can't see anything else. And, and mist in the second part, that really should probably be translated thick cloud. A cloud and a thick cloud. And, and if you've been in really bad fog, and we have fog here, but it's like wimpy fog. There's really bad fog other places where you can't see anything. That's the picture that's used of God's forgiveness for our sins. It's gone. It's done. It's paid for. We sang about that this morning. How could an omniscient God love us so much to willingly forget it and to say it's gone, it's done, and not hold it against us? A piece of firewood can't do that. And he's sort of comparing that here. Because God alone saves. And in verse 23, he says, you want to you respond to God's forgiveness? That He's blotted out your transgression? Sing, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. He will be glorified. And when we think of God's forgiveness for our sins, our our response should be worship. In fact, we're going to end the service in just a minute with worship. Praising God for His forgiveness of sins. See, see, here's the thing. This is looking forward to the perfect sacrifice for sin. Their sins were forgiven because they were looking forward to the Messiah. Our sins are forgiven because Jesus the Messiah has already come. And our sins, yes, they separate us from relationship with God. And, and we all have sin. We all have junk in our lives. And they separate us from relationship with God. And there is no way, because of idolatry, because we're into ourselves, there is no way we can save ourselves. There is no way we can pay that debt. We have offended an infinite God. We deserve to die. No question about it. But God, in His love and His mercy, sent His Son 
the Son of God in Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, and he lived a perfect life here, and then he was crucified on that cross, having done nothing wrong. And so he, as God, was able to take the punishment for our sins. This is why the cross is such a big deal, because it is the key to our sins being blotted out like a cloud. And he says, if you just believe in me, repent of your sins, turn around, acknowledge I am right and you are wrong. Turn to me and follow me. I will forgive your sins and blot them out and they are done. Amen? And he says, don't hold yourself to them anymore. I paid for them. Don't worry about your future with me. I paid for your sins. I bought you with the price of my son. Man, this should get us going. This should get us excited and ready to worship. Remember, the Creator alone forgives and redeems. Our sins are completely paid for. And relationship is restored. The last four or five verses there. Remember, God is working out things for His purposes. And these really are an introduction into the next chapter. So I'm just going to briefly mention them, but then we'll, we'll hit them next week when we hit um, chapter 45. He's reminding them again. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Remember, I created you. I, I made you. I know you. I am God. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by myself who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. And that that may not mean anything to us, but what he's saying is God alone can say, you're going back to your land. I'm going to take you out of Babylon. I'm going to give you Jerusalem back. I'm going to give you Israel back, Judah back. It's the God who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. And this is 28 is such a good verse as it leads into chapter 45. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now we look back and say, oh yeah, we know Cyrus did that. We can read in Second Chronicles that the first year when Cyrus was king of Persia, he had come in and taken over Babylon and he sent Israel back to build up the temple. This is 150 years before it happened. And God named him by name. This is cool. And God is showing, this is his example of the whole chapter of saying, I've got this. I will do what I say. In fact, to prove it to you, I'm going to name the guy I'm going to do it through. Imagine children of Israel or the, the, the Israelites sitting in Babylon and all of a sudden Nebuchadnezzar and his reign is out of power and Cyrus comes in. They start going back through the Isaiah scrolls. This is what God said. God is working his plan even when I didn't see it. He's working things out for his purpose. Sometime read Second Chronicles 36. 22 and 23. It tells the story of Cyrus. You can read Daniel and see the full version of the story. He is proving that he is God alone. He is sovereign. Because God uses this chapter to encourage his people. He encourages them that he made them so he hasn't abandoned them. 
He encourages him that he is God alone. He is the only one to trust. These idols, they mean nothing. Trust me. He encourages them by saying, your sins are done. They are paid for. You're not going to rot in discipline forever. And finally, he says, because I'm working my plan, you can trust me. You may not see it, but I am working my plan. way of benediction, let me read a couple of the verses from our text. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. O Lord, we praise you. We thank you for our time. We thank you that you have blotted out our sins through your sacrifice on the cross and rose from the dead so we can live eternally with you. Lord, we praise you knowing you are on the throne, you are executing your plan, and we can always trust you. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name.